Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is March 22nd. It's a very rainy day, but you know what? I'm sorry. It is March 20th, 2022. I've got, it says 202022, and I just read the last two numbers there. Our scripture today comes from Luke 19, 37 through 48. In my want to continue working through the scriptures in the way I tend to do it, you'll notice I'm kind of crossing a couple different stories that we usually do separately. But I would like you to hear them as they flow as one narrative. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even, if you, even you, had only known of this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls." They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts then, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders of the people among the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, but they could not yet find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Amen. So, this last week on Tuesday night with our, well, Tuesday night Bible study, we had the, the pleasure of being joined by Brother Samuel Sarpaya. Samuel is a former annual conference moderator, a pastor, a, I guess you could call him a professional peacemaker, as well as a church planter and the author of the book that we just finished. We had a great conversation about his work and about the work that we are called to do as members of the church universal, as people called to be followers of the Prince of Peace. Now, eventually, our conversation shifted a little bit, and we discussed the six principles of Kingian nonviolence. That is, the principles or the pillars that were developed by Martin Luther King Jr., along with other leaders of the civil rights movement, to govern how they were approaching their work. They are, in very short terms, Nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. 
The beloved community is the framework for the future. Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. Accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve the goal. Avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external, external physical violence. And the universe is on the side of justice. Now, as I read those out to you, some of those you may have said, of course, we agree with those, even if they might be hard to achieve. I think most of us can agree looking at our past as members of this church and also as Americans looking over the past hundred some years that nonviolence is a courageous way of life. We can accept that the community of believers is a framework that we should aim for. And that's a, that's a phrase that King often used, but we would often say the kingdom of heaven. Some of them might be things to struggle with. You know, and of course, when we started this project, this book, it was last fall. And we didn't foresee what's happening in Ukraine now. But of course, Ukraine came up in a discussion because how can you have a talk about peacemaking when there is a war constantly in our news? We can accept that we shouldn't hate people who are doing evil, but we can also accept that it's hard not to be upset with them and angry at them. And then there are some that are just confusing. Okay, one that's just confusing. Number five, I'll read it in full. Avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. This provision is of a mere reflection on the reality of the condition of one's opponent and the community at large. Did anyone get what that means? No? They asked me when we, we hit this like last, I don't know, December or so when we first read this, and I'm just like, I don't remember. I haven't taken a course on King in like, let me see, this is what, 2022? So it's been like 15 years. I don't know, it was like mid-college or so. It's been a while. I don't remember. So I was like, you know what, Samuel, can you explain number five to us? I'm paraphrasing, I don't, I can't, my memory is not good enough to quote him. But it goes along this line. Often we are violent towards ourselves. That is, we get caught in the possibilities of what didn't happen. Instead of moving forward, we just talk about what could have or should have happened if only we would have done something different. This is called suppositional thinking. And let's face it, almost everyone engages with it at some point in their lives. We have some kind of regret that we had, some choice we made in relationships, in choices in terms of education, in work, and where we live, all those kinds of things, and, and we might regret them. If only we had made a different choice. If only someone else had made a different choice, then, then life could be better, right? It's not always a bad thing. As with everything, things in moderation are okay. After all, the best way to figure out what will happen is to look at what has happened and to game out, you know, 
oh, if we'd done that differently, then maybe this could have happened, is a good way to approach the future. But it can become violent on ourselves when we become trapped in it. When instead of looking forward and making plans to the future, we just stop and go, only if. Only if things had been different. Or we get stuck in just living in the past period. You know, like the person who never quite got over the fact that they caught the winning touchdown back in high school. And that's the story they tell every time you get together with them. It's been 40 years, man. <laughs> I know that story. We regret. We regret that things have moved forwards. We regret things that have not gone the way we like them. And so it changes who we are and how we live. Now, Israel had a history of regrets. 1,300 years before Christ's life, they had made a covenant with a God called I Am. They promised, we will follow the law that you give us. We will worship only you. And God promised to them that I will give you a land that is protected and productive. It's an easy thing to promise. After all, who doesn't want to live in a land that's protected and productive? A land flowing in milk and honey. And sure, the law is complex. You know, open up your Bible sometime, read midway through Exodus through the end of Deuteronomy. It's complex. But for the person who's actually living in that society, in that world, it's not terribly hard. And it's unique. It never asks for any person to be sacrificed in the name of God. It calls that all free men are to be treated equitably. Every person, no matter who they are, how old, whether they're male or female, Jew or Gentile, are guaranteed one day off a week, which is completely unheard of anywhere else. Still, it could be hard. And you know what? We've got troubleshooters for you, too. God sets aside an entire tribe and their only job to answer questions. That's what the Levites are there for. You know, there's the ones who are working at the temple and then everyone else is spread out throughout the nation so they can answer your questions. Still, they can't keep the law. They allow themselves to begin worshiping as those around them do, to live by others' standards even going as far as to sacrifice that which is most precious to them. So I am withdrew the protection until they remembered their promise and then came back into covenant. We know this again and again, the cycle repeats itself until finally God fully takes away protection and their land is, uh, and their land is lost to the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And they are scattered across the world. Like, they're coming soon, dandelions in the wind. Finally, they had regained what was once theirs, though not really theirs anymore. They were to be subject to others, to the Persians, the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids. Sure, they had about 100 years where they had a king of their own. But most of it, 
they were quote unquote allies with the Roman uh, Senate, which eventually became the Roman Empire and also less allies and more subjects. People had different reactions to all of this history. Like the temple elite, the Sadducees. You know what? They had finally gotten back everything they had lost. They had the temple again. They could follow the ancient law as it was written with daily sacrifices and prayers. They did not want to lose that again. So you know what? If that meant they had to ally with the Romans and the Herodians and those who were less than upright, that was okay. Because you know what? It's better to be connected to some corruption, but get, have what you want still, right? The Pharisees, on the other hand, did not want anything to do with this corruption. Sure, they could get along with Gentile neighbors, but they didn't want to be corrupted like the temple elite. And so they worked on purifying themselves. Perhaps if they were pure, the pure in the way that the ancient law called them to live. Remember, I talked about this the other week. Leviticus is a rule book on how to live with God in your midst. And part of that is being so pure that you cannot be harmed by God's presence. They were trying to reachieve that, to live that purely. If they could do that, then perhaps God would return. Perhaps God would send that Messiah down to make everything right again, to bring them back to the days of glory when David sat upon the throne. Or you could be like the zealots who said, you know what? We will make this our nation again. We will make this an ethnic Jewish theocracy in which we will take back what is ours, kick out all of the corruption, and put in place our ideal kingdom. We already think the Messiah is here, or we think that the Messiah will come by us doing this. We can force God's hand. I tell you all of this because I am sure as you listen to these words, you can probably connect it to modern movements in our culture. Still, still. Now, we also have to recognize that Judaism was a little different than most Romans groups, the Jews, Judea specifically. They were given an extra level of respect that wasn't afforded to the Greeks or the Egyptians or any other group. Part of it was because Judea was a really valuable land. They had one of the highest GDPs in ancient Rome, partially because the Jews were an industrious people who lived in a land that was a breadbasket. Part of it was also that on the other side of Judea was the empire of the Nabataeans. You might not have heard their names, but you've all seen a picture of their capital, Petra, right? It's built into the living stone itself. The Nabataeans controlled the trade routes, and all of those trade routes then went right through Judea. It was worth the Romans giving them a little more freedom than most, since, you know, it made them more money. Everything comes back to money, doesn't it? The other part of it was the recognition that Judaism was a unique religion. 
Whereas, you know what? You conquer Egypt, you can throw the emperor's statue up in there, and that's okay. They're used to a whole bunch of gods. The Jews, yeah, you, you couldn't even bring money with the emperor's picture into the temple. That was a big no-no. So they were given extra exemptions, both because of their financial wealth, but also because, well, it was better to keep them pacified. Now, as what always happens, when you give some people exemptions and other people not, it creates stress. And, and I'm going to use kind of the words Greek and Gentiles here interchangeably because we're, the word Gentile just means nations and refers to anybody who's not Jewish. And we're talking about a huge swath of what we today would recognize as different ethnic cultures. So it started to create strain between these different ethnic cultures and the Jews. Sure, there was a little bit of fact based in it, but for the most part, like any you know, racist conversations, and this isn't modern racism, this is ancient, it's different, but still, it's othering people. And othering people never works out well for anyone. But they were upset because these Jews didn't do things the right way. They weren't good, religious, patriotic Romans worshiping the Roman emperor. Sure, they had sacrifices to God on behalf of the emperor, but that wasn't really enough for them. And before long, riots began between Gentiles and Jews. It started in Alexandria about five years after Jesus' time until finally it really exploded in the year 66 in a place called Caesarea. You guys probably know Caesarea or Caesarea. It's Caesarea Maritima or something like that. Don't quote my Latin. It's not my language. But it is the main port of Judea. There, a group of Gentile or Greek uh, traders were having some issues with the synagogue that was next door. The synagogue refused to sell them their land. So they kind of kept trying to build around their property to kind of kick them out of the spot by force. And when that didn't work, they decided they were going to have a little bit of augury. Augury is when you kill a bird and then look at its entrails to try to figure out the future. Not something we do today, but something the Romans did a lot. Well, not only was that kind of a rude thing, it desecrated the synagogue. Oh my. That was our daughter, wasn't it? It desecrated the synagogue. And not only did they desecrate the synagogue, there is a unit of Roman Calvary just watching. It was their duty to protect the synagogue. Just like any day, you know, today, we would expect the modern police force to protect people whose rights are being infringed on, right? We expect that of them. In short, this leads to a war. Actually, what happens is they raise $2 million today's worth, uh, worth of silver, give it to the governor and say, we expect you to look into this. That's what you did. You paid the governor to look into things, to give you a hearing. The governor said, thank you for the silver, and no. 
Then he left the sil- he took the silver with him, went to Jerusalem, tried to steal more silver from the temple. The temple said, yeah, that's right. We're no longer going to sacrifice anything in the name, um, anything to God in the name of the emperor. And all out rebellion breaks out. And I could literally spend hours up here explaining it because I've watched hours of videos trying to understand it just to say what it is. But we'll leave it at this. Romans, um, Romans were fighting Jews. Jews were fighting Jews. And it was one giant mess. It eventually ends with Titus, who will later become Emperor Titus, surrounding and besieging Jerusalem, conquering it, and tearing it apart stone by stone. Thus ends the second temple. Thus ends the worship of God in a tradition that stretched back that 1,300 years to Moses and Sinai in the building of the first tabernacle. Gone. Now much of that happened, you know, I I said the year 66. This is a good 30 plus years after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So when Jesus is entering in, and mind you, this is also after Luke has been written. I mean, this happened before Luke was written. So Luke knows this going into his writing, and he knows that this is what Jesus is foreseeing as he walks into the gates. I can't say this is future telling, that, you know, Jesus said, you know what? In 33 years, Titus is going to show up and rip all this apart. I can't say that, because Jesus doesn't say that. I think more likely than not, Jesus is being prophetic in the same way that a lot of the other prophets are prophetic. We realize the path that we are walking down, or he recognized the path that the people of Jerusalem were walking down, and that would lead to rebellion, war, and destruction. And so he weeps. He weeps for despair at what he sees is the logical outcome of what the people are doing. He despairs. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, those of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish body of government and justice will reject him and his message of the kingdom. They will continue to fight with one another. They will continue to fight with the Greeks and the Romans and all the other Gentiles. And the message of the Prince of Peace will not be heard. War is coming. If only. If only they would listen. If only they would listen, then these hosannas would not be needed. You know, as they enter, there's this funny little verse where the Pharisees tell Jesus to silence his disciples. They're calling, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Prince in heaven, uh, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Now, yes, throughout Luke, Pharisees and Jesus often come to almost blows. They're often arguing and fighting with one another. But Luke doesn't see the Pharisees as a real enemy rather as a argumentative brother, perhaps is the best way to put it. Because when they return in Acts, the Pharisees are more often than not going to side with the Christians and try to protect them. I think we need to read it that way because this is the last time the Pharisees will get a mention in this book. 
After this, the people who are opposing Jesus aren't the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees, the temple elite, and the Romans. So their comment, I don't think it is an attempt to silence Jesus' message, but a worry. Jesus, you know, if you come in here going, you know, hey, here's the king of the Jews, the Romans are not going to like that. Do you know what the Romans do when they don't like things? Crucifixion. Maybe we should avoid upsetting them. After all, the zealots every three or four years march on Jerusalem, and it ends up in a bloodbath and lots of people being put on crosses. Maybe, maybe you should be quiet so the guys with the spears and the swords don't hear you proclaiming, here comes the king. But Jesus rejects that call. He rejects it and says these cries of glory are covering the mournful cries of the very stones of this city. For this is God's city, the one in which David established his kingdom, the one in which God's temple has been worshipped at for centuries on end. Though the people may be ignorant of where they are going, this city knows there will be war. And Jesus can't ignore that air. The days in which this space would be the seat of God have come to an end. Unless, unless the people change their hearts, they move away from looking at the past and worrying that they will lose it all again. And instead look into a future in which they follow God's pure law. Jesus knows, though, they will not turn away. The wheels are already turning, and the blood will be spilt. So he goes on. He goes on to describe what will eventually happen when Titus arrives. This day will come when your enemies build an embankment against you. I think the NRSV actually uses the even more warlike term, rampart. They will encircle you, hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another. You know, one of the most important lessons I learned as a child is that no person can ever make you feel a certain way. Okay, it's not exactly true. It's one I apply to my life, but I know it's not true. Because feelings are natural reactions. You have a feeling about something often before you've logically processed it. You know, kind of that moment of instant anger, and then you realize what they've actually meant. You can't control that. I get it. But, but how you react to that feeling, how you use that feeling, and whether you carry it on with you or not is 100% your choice. No one can make you carry a grudge. No one can make you carry anger or hate or sorrow. No one can make you do that. That is your choice. Or at least your struggle. We can lean into it. We can carry it. We can let it go. It's what got me through a very tough junior high life. Jesus faces that choice right here. He can clearly see what is about to happen. 
He can choose to stop at the gates and mourn. We see that so often through the Bible. Prophets who mourn what is to come. But he will not do that. He will not sit there and say, only, if only they had better followed my father. If only they had heard my gospel, then they could avoid what is to come. But he chooses to keep moving forward. To move on to the top of the city, into the court of the Gentiles, the outermost layer of the temple of God. There, one last time. One last time, he will reclaim it in a symbolic gesture as he uh, drives out those who seek to use this space for financial gain. He will kick them out. He has rejected that call for self-preservation from the Pharisees and has instead run headlong into the process that will end with his arrest in the garden at Gethsemane. He will not spend this time quietly, though. He will work. He will preach. He will preach hard. He will preach against the temple elite. He will reorient the people towards God, and he will tear into their many paper tigers they keep offering up. If only things were different. That's a lesson for us. If only this world was a better place. If only people all attended church. If only every person voted in every election. If only thus. I know. I get it. You know what, though? It's not happening, not today, maybe tomorrow. And it's certainly not happening if I'm standing here saying, if only. Avoid the internal violence of the soul. Do not hold yourself back from moving forward by saying, if only, if only I could have, should have, would have, might have and be like Jesus. Walk forward knowing that the only change that comes about is the change that we work for. The change that happens through the Last Supper, through the crucifixion and through the resurrection does not happen except that Jesus works for it to happen. And we are called to live a life like his. A life of action, not a life of regret. So the only if only that you should be saying is something along the lines of, if only I'd remembered to pick up coffee yesterday, then I wouldn't have to go pick it up as I'm going out to work. Don't live in the past. Don't live in regret. Put one foot in front of the next and keep walking. You know, I don't usually write the end of my sermons. I, I haven't done it 
in probably, let me see, a year and a half? I don't know. About the time we came back together, I just stopped writing the end of my sermons because I found that they always sounded wrong. But when I just let the spirit flow, it worked. And I did not even think about going about guiding feet until, like, I didn't even make the connection that that was the next hymn in line. Just even think about it. Didn't even look at the page. And it just came out. I never claim that it's definitely the spirit talking. Because I can't say for sure. But I think the spirit is still talking to us. Open yourself up and let the Spirit guide your feet. And you know what? Sure, things can be different. But if we want them to be different in the future, then let that Spirit guide you to where you need to be next. That's how we bring about the beloved kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Amen.